Welcome to the Block Fuel Podcast, where we sit down and speak with thought leaders in the ever-changing world of digital assets. So sit back and relax, because another episode of the Block Fuel Podcast begins now. We are joined here today by Carol House. Very excited. I spoke with Carol about two weeks ago and was blown away with her background. So we'll get into a lot of that. Appreciate you taking the time to come on the Block Fuel Podcast. Thanks so much, Avi. Great to be here. I uh, just finished some travels at the DeFi retreat, but I needed to make time for this. You've got a great audience and excited to talk to you all today. For those that don't know, it's always helpful to just start off with your background. You have an extensive career, right? You've been in various sectors, such as the government, nuclear defense, cybersecurity, now venture capital. So such a diverse experience has shaped your perspective, probably from the government side, technology side. And just an incredible person. Could you just dive in a little bit further uh, on your background? Sure. Thanks. I'm afraid my background's a bit of a patchwork quilt of different national security issues. Uh, I was Army back in the day, chem, bio, rad, nuclear defense. So uh, that means gas mask stuff um, to make sure if we ever got climbed that my unit could keep fighting uh, in that context. Then I also switched over to do intelligence, specifically as a collection manager. That means all the assets that watch and listen to people. It was my job to to manage the requirements from the operators down in the line units and make sure that our assets were pointed in the right direction to provide the most fruitful intelligence for our operators. So um, that was my time in the Army. After that, did a stint at grad school at Georgetown and then under the Presidential Management Fellowship. My first tour in the White House was at the Office of Management and Budgets Cyber and National Security Unit that they were standing up. So basically working with the civilian agencies to secure the federal civilian enterprise and work on cybersecurity posture for agencies and make sure that we were matching up like human capital and resource budgeting to be able to align with improving their defense posture. Spent some time at Senate Homeland doing doing legislative work, like the I worked on the legislation that created the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency. Also did work on supply chain security um, and just general critical infrastructure protection. Um, after that, I really wanted to work on hunting down cyber criminals. Uh, and I heard about this little bureau at Treasury called FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, which is the U.S. anti-money laundering regulator. And uh, they had a cyber unit. So I went over there and I was the lead for policy for cyber, crypto, and identity policy since 2017. So got to work on the international FATF standards for virtual assets. The thought of being the Financial Action Task Force, kind of the UN for anti-money laundering uh, on the international stage. And then most recently at the government, my last tour in the White House was at the National Security Council, where I served as the Director for Cybersecurity and Secure Digital Innovation. Long title, I know, but what that really translates to, I helped uh, coordinate and run the U.S. counter-ransomware campaign. I supported the president's executive order on digital assets and ensuring responsible development in them, as well as work on digital identity. So I spent over 10 years in the government, had just a wonderful time on different NAPSEC issues. But I left government, as you mentioned, about, about a year ago. And now I'm at TerraNet Ventures, where I'm serving as an exec in residence. We are kind of an interesting venture capital firm. We do some research and consulting work and also incubating a business intel platform in-house. We talked about this before we did our interview here today, and we were discussing how there's this big gap of where the crypto of the world where it was 10 years ago has evolved significantly, I'd say, to say lightly, regulation, yeah. they're front and center. So you're not in regulation anymore necessarily, right? You're more on the venture side of things? That is accurate, that that's my current role. Um, although I have, <laughs> I'm a panelist, uh, made a comment 
recently at an event that I seem to still identify as a regulator, which is fair. That's not an unfair statement about uh, sort of the values and the perspective that I still tend to reflect. So yes, yes. Sitting in venture, but I am advising the the Commodity Futures Trade Commission, the CFTC. They're one of the, the two capital markets to regulators in the U.S. They're a sister agency with the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission. Um, so I'm I'm the chair of the Technology Advisory Committee um, and the co-chair of the Digital Assets and Blockchain Subcommittee right now. So still advising regulators um, and also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a think tank based in D.C., we're also engaging with regulators. So I'm on the outside, um, but still very much engaged with the policymaking community. Well, I think that's interesting, too. You kind of are, are that bridge now from the traditional crypto of the world. And again, where it's going, where it, there needs to be some regulation, as we've seen here in the U.S. Looking overseas, we've seen Asia and obviously in Europe, there's been some regulatory progress. Where do you see this going from a very high level? And are we making positive strides towards uh I don't know if it would be called a happy medium, but a, an area where people and businesses that want to get involved in the blockchain space can feel comfortable knowing that they have some sort of standards to, to recognize. Yeah, um, and I, I really appreciated a comment that you made earlier, which is that the, the sector has evolved a lot. Because basically, I think that both sides, there's a lot of evolution that has happened, um, yet there's also still a lot more that's needed. But I, I do completely agree with that sentiment that the conversations today with the crypto space are generally much more different than they were. Even in 2019, when we were passing the FATF virtual asset standards, there were people in industry that were saying things to me like that. It's impossible to know who's on the other side of the internet. And I'll say like as a, as a cybersecurity person and a technologist policy wonk, I was uh, a bit skeptical with that statement, uh, given that there have been technologies that enable identity and trust across the internet for decades. So not everyone in the sector felt that way. It was just that there were some conversations that definitely, they certainly didn't involve a lot of empathy on sometimes on both sides um, and always a realistic understanding of the extent of technical understanding that was inside the government. So right now, internationally, you're definitely going to see nothing but more regulation, mostly because the international community has kind of nowhere to go but up um, because at least uh, across most jurisdictions, most countries have not implemented any kind of regulatory framework for crypto and certainly not a holistic one. Um, we, we saw in a report that the FATF published recently that I think only about 26 jurisdictions have implemented just regulatory frameworks, much less enforcing against it requirements for implementing something called the travel rule, which really right. just, it's a fundamental rule about understanding who's on either, either side of a transaction, um, especially between financial institutions which is kind of an, an implicit part of doing things like sanctions compliance. Um, so like only 26 countries out of over 200 jurisdictions that are members of the FATF, uh, there's a long way to go uh, in implementation. Um, but the MICA framework um, is something that I know lots of people have pointed to um, as a comprehensive approach. Uh, you, we've seen other legislation that's existed for quite some time in Singapore, as well as Korea um, and other nations. So I think you're going to continue to see a lot more um, in the U.S., uh, there's there's been a, a very comprehensive framework. There's pieces that aren't existent, like required prudential, prudential meaning like cybersecurity, operational resilience, capital reserves, like things that make you a prudent and safe and sound financial institution. There's places for us to go there that we really need to focus on. But anti-money laundering has been a requirement since at least 2011 in the crypto space. And then certain requirements when you fall under the SECs and CFTCs jurisdictions also have been in place in, an, in a tech-neutral, activity-based way. 
for many, many years. But in the U.S., I think that you're going to see more enforcement, um, which is critical in this space. Not everyone in industry wants to acknowledge that. And I have my hopes about how we can prioritize enforcement against the most egregious violators. But enforcement and compliance in the space, sector shaping, not sector breaking enforcement is what's needed. And I think hopefully we'll come to try to help drive more compliance because only with that compliance, like you mentioned, consumers need to have trust and faith in this ecosystem or else they're never going to get the mass adoption that the DeFi community really wants. So I think with more enforcement and more application internationally, so that the U.S. is not playing global police here will be really critical to achieving that kind of consumer trust and best practices being implemented across the industry. It makes sense. And I think given your background in cybersecurity, understanding surveillance, I think that can go both ways, right? We saw during 9-11, the Patriot Act came out of that, right? And that was kind of phase one. And we'll get into some of the CBDC. I know there's a lot of conversations understanding where that's going to be going. But Just like given your background in nuclear defense, intelligence, how do you manage surveillance and how does that relate to typical individuals' lives and how will it change, I think, as we enter into this proliferation, I think, of blockchain technologies? That's a great question, Um, especially since having worked as like a part of the IC and Intel community as a military intelligence officer, but then doing things that feel very collection management-y at FinCEN, I'll highlight that first in In a national security role with the military, of course, we're doing things consistent with our policies and being in a combat environment and monitoring and looking for indicators of illicit activity and things that could indicate some kind of either strongholds for where certain illicit illicit actors and terrorists and, and insurgents were operating, as well as for any indicators of attacks that were coming against our units or those, the local populations and police and national forces that we are partnered with. But uh, I'll highlight, especially at a place like FinCEN, because this is really the kind of surveillance and monitoring issue that I know most in this industry are really, are like especially and really concerned about in the context of crypto. FinCEN is, as I said, the AML regulator. The Bank Secrecy Act is the legislative framework behind it. Um, it's interesting that it's called Bank Secrecy Act because it's really not, it's not terribly about secrecy. It's kind of about the, the it's, it's much more about transparency. Um, that's needed um, either to financial institutions um, uh, who are performing some regulatory functions by by monitoring and looking for where illicit activity is happening. That's part of the obligation and privilege of doing business in the financial sector, which is a high-value, high-risk sector that they must be, as the institutions on the front lines, that they have to guard against illicit activity because they're best placed to see it. Um, also having financial institutions do a lot of this surveillance and monitoring, not only are they best equipped to do it because of their understanding of risk and their consumers, they're also, and that also means that we're not handing over all financial data to the government for the government to do all their surveillance and monitoring. Imagine how high our taxes would be if FinCEN had all financial data from every institution to do that kind of monitoring. That's not a desirable or, or practical outcome. For a lot of reasons. So there's reasons, including privacy preserving. That's why financial institutions end up being a part of the regulatory framework um, in conducting some of that activity and holding that responsibility. Um, but FinCEN, of course, is the regulator. Like we establish the collection requirements via our regulation and the forms that financial institutions report. Some even apply to Americans. Like when you have to file um, an FBAR, if you have more than $10,000 held in a foreign account, it's called yeah, the foreign bank um, account report. 
the F bar is something that you report every every year, basically with your taxes, and that's that's the requirement. Or when you're on a plane and you have to say, "Am I carrying over ten grand in cash or monetary instruments across this border?" That's a requirement from FinCEN called a currency monetary instrument report. So those are just some things that we ask for people to do and report on. But for the most part, we put that monitoring and surveillance and that friction, that requirement to provide information on the institution, not you as a person and consumer, but on the institution that has more visibility um, and typically is the one making all the money the, uh, in, or making a lot of money in the ecosystem. But I mention all of this to help highlight what is that, that monitoring and transparency framework to also highlight that FinCEN, in issuing its regulations, they are published through notice and comment with industry input, and they have to account for a balance. Um, it's not a police state. It's not a big brother state. But in, it, uh, FinCEN has to account for impact on things like privacy, impact on things like the burden and cost to industry, um, even things like the travel rule that I mentioned before. The U.S., for example, is not currently compliant with the international standard for the travel rule, which is supposed to be at $1,000. The requirement in the U.S. is at $3,000 because FinCEN um, initially proposed either a zero amount or a 1000 amount, I think, in the 90s when they originally proposed the rule. Um, I think a lot of people in industry wrote back and said around 10000 So then this, like, the middle ground that they, kind of, that they ended up in was around 3000 um, so that, that's an example that highlights that there's this balance between burden and hurting innovation and, um, and impact on privacy that is accounted for in the national security benefits that you get from this critical information that supports law enforcement investigations, identifying terrorist financing and child and sexual abuse networks and cybercrime and fraud networks that are hurting Americans every day. No, I think it's interesting too. Obviously, it's an election year coming up here in the next November. And as we head into 2024, of course, um, this is top of mind. How have you seen, you know, working on the inside? And I'm sure there's things you can't share uh, working in the Biden administration. But how have you seen this now that you're no longer directly uh, working in the White House? Like the different sides from Republicans or Democrats and, and where do they meet together? Is there a common ground where there's a bipartisan support and then maybe where there's, you know, some disconnect between the two parties. Yeah. Um, well, first I'll say like, I, it was, it was an honor to work, um, under the Biden administration and was just the coolest job ever. And, and I'm so supportive of, of a lot of friends and colleagues that still remain in the admin. Um, of course I've also worked under, I worked under president Obama and Trump when I was at the office of management and budget. So I've served three presidents so far. So I care very much about this point that you make about the need for bipartisan but bipartisan partnership to really drive meaningful change here because the regulatory frameworks need to be able to survive administration changes and turnovers. Um, I'll say that there is a, unfortunately, what I see from the outside is a very, on the extreme sides of both parties, because there are moderates, of course, just like with centralization being a spectrum and not a binary like zero one yes or no so are party lines uh, and ideologies um so on on extreme sides ex this very extreme polarization is just not very helpful there are some very extreme views that that fear that well um government shouldn't do money central bank di digital currencies or cbdc's are inherently evil and if the u.s creates one of course it will be designed like the ecny which is not at all how I feel it is the reality of what's happening with CBDCs or what the U.S. CBDC would look like and that we should instead put all faith in and in huge corporations that have so far in the sector have not really 
um, demonstrated putting in place a lot of the proper protections, especially prudentially and against fraud and market manipulation and, and other violations that I'm seeing in the space versus the other side that can at times in the most extreme instances, ignore the fact that innovation comes from industry, that the U.S. innovation sector is huge and incredible and has driven the strength of our national security tool. Um, and some people who think that Americans will open up an account with your friendly neighborhood central bank. Um, and I, and the Fed is great, but I like, there's, there's a lot of challenges and issues that I see potentially with a retail central bank digital currency in the U.S. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible. There are technical implementations that can help mitigate some of these concerns, but, um, Americans are even averse to something like a national ID, an ID card, um, getting them to believe in and use a digital dollar, I think is going to be a major lift in establishing and building trust. Um, even beyond when you can prove technologically that there are, that there are not the kinds of backdoors that would concern people, I think that getting adoption would be significant would be a significant hurdle in the U.S. Um, but that's just a guess. And on my side, the real issue is with of what's needed is that bipartisan partnership of research and development um, surrounding that on on CBDCs as well as in privately issued money, which is a part of the U.S. Fin the U.S. financial system now. Um, so we've seen some instances of bipartisanship uh, on the Hill, like you saw, um, you saw the Democrats supporting and passing out of the House Financial Services Committee, the market structure bill that, that was just led by French Hill over there um, under McHenry. So that is a good indicator, I think, of people coming together and recognizing that a technology is not inherently something that needs to be verified. Um, it's all about the design, just like any other technology, it can be abused, um, the issue, the failures are with implementations um, and failures in people and businesses, um, not generally because of failure of a technology. So I think that that means because it's about a technology and really the, there's a lot more than just finding it at play in Web3 and DLT, I'm really hoping that this is a good opportunity for bipartisanship just right now. And especially with the election cycle and everything that's coming up, there's a lot of difficulties to have to get past to incentivize both sides to really come together. Yeah, especially a time in the election year when Fox News and CNN and both sides, this dichotomy that we've seen now where there, it does feel like there's extremism on both sides. I always have this conversation with my friends. I think like 80% of America is probably on the same page, but then we only see the 10% craziness on both sides, which both parties are, are definitely responsible for. Now, the CBDC, you know, I'm on Twitter, you, you hear all these conspiracies, some end up becoming potentially true, some are not. And there's all these myths that are out there. But I, I'd love to dive into a little bit more of like some of the common misconceptions. You could stop someone's credit card, you could freeze someone's bank account if you need to. So some of those fears may be unwarranted. You can do a lot of that today. Some of the questions that have popped up in Canada with the, the truckers where the government had frozen accounts, you really have to gain the trust uh, of America, Americans and essentially the globe, since the dollar is still predominantly used. I know there's bricks coming into play. So there's a lot coming to this pinnacle right now. I'd love to hear some of your like common misconceptions. And maybe if you can like demystify some of this for our guests. For our I'm, I'm hoping that I can. I so care about all those issues and I understand it's a very emotional issue, right? Like it triggers a lot of these concerns around repression of political dissidents and the concerns around autocratic regimes. Like a lot of the same concerns that the US government shared and around the ECNY when we had Olympians, you know, traveling to China during the the major pilot rollout of the ECNY, which is China's uh, central bank digital currency. 
that they've been rolling out. So I first, I will say that just like with any cryptocurrency or crypto asset and anything else that is based on a ledger or any other technology, everything is about the design. So I will say that people who feel that the U.S. would try to use it in a way that would be counter to the virtues and principles in our constitution do not understand that our government is here to defend and protect that. Um, like the U.S. government joined the rest of the G7 in publishing a principle statement for retail CBDCs that included things like rule of law and governance and privacy having to be critical principles in retail CBDCs. Um, as well as operational resilience. And there were a series of other principles that were listed. It's a great document that you can find online. So anything that the U.S. pursues and with its democratic partners and experimentation is going to be something that's looking to build in by design democratic principles into that system. And the way that we hold that accountable is through our elected representatives and also through the great civil servants that are a part of the government. So there's free opportunities for people to serve, to be a part of that. Um, and also in public-private partnership opportunities, like what the Boston Fed has been doing in Project Hamilton with MIT under the Digital Currency Initiative there um, to experiment with CBDCs. Um, there's other work that's going on at other branches at the Fed also, but um, th that leads to another myth, I feel. I know that some there have been some people, and again, I'm sympathetic to concerns around CBDCs. I just don't think that it's an accurate view that some people feel that and Treasury and the Fed only want a CBDC, um, uh, and and so therefore it should be prohibited in certain um, in certain jurisdictions. Like the state of Florida has already done so um, for an instrument that does not even exist yet. Um, I I will say that that is I don't I don't feel that the Fed has signaled at all that all it wants is a CBDC and to prohibit stable coins. Um, I believe there are authorities that the government has where they could have pursued something like. A, pro a prohibition. Um, of course, enforcing it practically would have been difficult, but that has specifically not been the objective of the president um, or the Fed ever in any of their statements and researches uh, and research uh, projects and papers that have been published so far. The executive order uh, from the president um, established as a policy priority an objective of promoting the technological advances that are needed to promote compliance and responsible innovation in digital assets, including things like stable coins. Um, and cryptocurrencies, um, just it also established with the utmost priority research and development, not issuance, research and development of a central bank digital currency and assessment of whether or not one is in the national interest. It is not a foregone conclusion. Um, There's just a recognition that R&D around something as complicated like creating a CBDC and what that means for wholesale versus retail, another issue for MIDS that there's not enough nuance on the differences between wholesale, basically like just between banks and central banks um, versus retail, which is going to be consumer facing. Those are very, di there's very different implications. Like privacy isn't really a huge concern on the wholesale side, the way that it would be for a retail CBDC. So there's different efficiencies and design considerations that you want for each one. And most of the conversations just aren't very nuanced and aren't accounting for the fact that the government recognizes that this will take many, many, many years to be able to develop. I also the Fed and the White House have stated that they are only interested in moving forward with support from Congress. Um, and in my read, as not a lawyer, I am not a lawyer, but by my read of statute, I don't even think that Treasury could could issue, that the Treasury and the Fed could issue a retail CBDC without the authorization from Congress. I 
I think they could do it with wholesale on their side. Research and development, I think, is fine. Again, lawyers will be the ones to answer all those questions, but the issuance demands congressional support anyway, and the agencies have have voiced their commitment to doing so and working with Congress on those efforts. So I think that sometimes just that dialogue is not capturing the level of like the amount of work and research and effort that's really going to have to go into making these assessments um, so that like, it'll take five or 10 years maybe to do this. But we just want to make sure that if we assess that we need one in five or 10 years, that we've been spending that time doing research and development to understand what design choices we should be making. And even if the U.S. doesn't end up implementing one, how great would it be if we could turn to an emerging economy that instead of turning to China, um, who's been playing a leading role on the international stage in many standards bodies on CBDCs, what if we could show, here's what a freedom coin template looks like, or I don't know, whatever you want to call it for a CBDC that builds in democratic principle. Um, we don't have to have one to still be useful and valuable on the international stage in standard setting um, to try to help make sure that there are nations other than China um, for these countries to be able to turn to make wise choices on how to design and implement a CBDC. So hopefully that's helpful. I know that was a uh, explanation, but I feel so strongly on this issue and what I feel are is a misunderstanding on both sides at times. So that last part was interesting where you said like you can build in the democratic components to that. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that? I, I'd love to know what you mean by that. Absolutely. So, um, for example, like privacy being like one of the principles that the G7 committed to and stated needed to be present in any retail CBDC used by a democratic nation. So the idea of making sure that any, first off, privacy and anonymity are not the same thing. You can achieve privacy through anonymity, but I'll just highlight that as another sort of like false equation that happens at times. Privacy tends to mean that there is sensitive information that uh, is discoverable or disclosable under certain conditions, permissions, and protections. So basically, the, the debate or discussion there on the CBDC that is demanded in something around privacy is just like in the healthcare space. It's not that there is no healthcare data. It's that that data must be protected and has you know these requirements under HIPAA about who can get access to that data and under what requirements. Um, just like the Right to Financial Privacy Act and Graham Leach Bliley um, in the U.S. for financial data, um, basically similar, if not even more stringent privacy controls will need to be built in by design into a CBDC system, which could include blockchain technology, doesn't have to. Um, so, for example, similar technologies to what are being discussed right now in the context of cryptocurrencies and stablecoins, um, things like zero-knowledge proofs and homomorphic encryption which can allow for like computationally verifying mathematically that something exists or is true or is in some state without having to get access to the underlying data. And then homomorphic encryption, something that allows for more like advanced computations and analytics uh, to be run on top of a large data set without having to decrypt the underlying data. Um, so like kind of similar uh, like and mutually supporting privacy enhancing technologies, but not equivalent to each other um, or, or not the same. Those are the kinds of technologies that could be built into a CBDC system so that um, based, based on how it's designed and implemented, certain trends of illicit activity could be detected. And then based on whatever the discussion and determination was of what information should be able to be discoverable by the government should be able to then be seen when let's say you had like multiple private keys that judges had and they like, you know, signed and validated like, okay, I should get read only access to a transaction or I should get read rights in the ca case of a warrant or a confiscation order. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an engineer. Engineers will solve this problem. Um, 
So we're like basically highlighting that there are ways to build in the values that we have as, as a nation. Um, technology solves policy problems all the time. Policy objectives are just technical requirements and really fun, interesting challenges for engineers to solve. Um, there would be some very tough discussions and debates about the reality of what, what exactly should that, how should that policy requirement be implemented? Like where is the data that should be discoverable by whom? By the government in the case of a CBDC in how can you enable a cash like function? and interaction of a CBDC and under what context. There's different controls you could do where you have, you could have thresholds for transaction amounts, where there's some level of information that gets disclosed, like that this is a user in some country and the amount with some amount, but maybe they can't see who the user is. Or later, if there's like certain indicators with this like sanitized and screened user ID, I can only get discovered by authorities once some trigger for belief in association with terrorism financing and a warrant has been issued. I don't know. Like something like that could be designed. I don't know that that's the right balance. And I'm not going to be the person making that choice because I'm not in government anymore. Yeah, civil societies and public and the government will have to come together to decide how to strike and design in that balance. The last question on the CBDC is because I was just pu- trying to pull it up because uh, I had to remind myself with PayPal, there was big news and they- they've been recently in the news for their stablecoin. I was looking back in, uh, I think it was November 22, it looked like they had this thing go out all throughout Twitter that they would take $2,500 if you were promoting misinformation. So is that a piece of the CBDC? And I don't know if that's a myth or, or like potentially true that if eventually down the road you're promoting misinformation, could they pull money from your account without having any say in the matter there? Oh, it's interesting. I, so I honestly, I'm not familiar with that action. So I need to, I need to look into that. Decisions like that are, are going to have to be a part of the discussion about what authorities for revocation, for freezing, for movement um, of funds can exist and under what circumstances. The security requirements for CBDC would be, are going to be so huge and so critical. I can't imagine a situation in the U.S. where we're an authority for freezing or for moving funds, otherwise confiscating them in some way doesn't largely reflect probably what the, what the current policy requirements are of like that there is due process that is issued and then that the funds can be touched that way. Um, I think so. some of the policy discussions and that the balance that we talked about before that should be accounted for is that depending on how you implement the CBDC, if you allow for unhosted wallets, like if DOT is a part of this implementation and if basically having a have having an unhosted wallet or self-hosted wallet equivalent is a part of this implementation, then the question should be, will the the central authority have the ability to stop and confiscate those assets? Um, and in the context of stopping and like uh, freezing, confiscating them, um, providing transparency to the underlying information. Um, I think all of those things require different, like probably different levels of due process and determination. Um, I, um, there's the risks in the digital space um, that are provided of speed and cross-border reach instantaneously of significant value. Um, scaling of that activity that is enabled in the digital economy in a way that cash is just a pain to move from point A to point B. Um, yes, you can do so largely, if not entirely anonymously, um, but like the are to detect cash movement because it takes time and space and physics to move from point A to point B um, in the digital ecosystem where you don't require moving fr- through, you know, um, messaging through Swift and movement through like Fedwire and chips. Um, 
and other transfer systems, um, basically like this is this is an ecosystem where that presents an additional enhanced risk. With more traceability, the risk-based approach might be that you can't touch it under certain circumstances. Um, I think, you know, based on permissioned or permissionless CBDC ecosystems, most likely permissioned, I imagine. Um, but I but truly, you know, it all depends on each country's choice. Um, I think, it, yeah, I, I can't imagine in the U.S. something being implemented that isn't consistent presently with our rule of law and our expectations for the fact that the government can't touch everything, can't see everything. Um, so there's going to have to strike a balance. I don't know exactly what that balance is, but um, engagement with the public and civil society will have to be a critical part of that determination. And it, it is a very complicated issue, right? There's a lot of different thoughts going around and freedom as an American is like one of the biggest. And if people start to say, what is the order of truth? And if something is misinformation, I could see that being like a very uh, polarizing issue that eventually comes to surface within the CBDC space. Switching gears, still in the government space with the SEC and Coinbase. For those that are not familiar, if you can just give a quick recap of, of where things are standing right now. High level, I think from the outside perspective, you see the SEC except Coinbase, they went public, right? And then there's some issues right now where they're still kind of being the spokesperson for crypto, it feels like. But I'd love to, to get your take on that. Um, so uh, this, um, well, in all, all specific cases are, of course, tough and based on unique facts and circumstances. Um, that's fun to hear from a regulator, right? Uh, but it's true. So first, I will say that I am, of course, sympathetic to the SEC. I think some of the most brilliant people in this space are some of the staff that I have worked with who have been there for many years. Um, so the SEC has a lot of wonderful people that there that are working. Um, I also understand that industry, um, including Coinbase, feel and have called, have long called for um, asks from the SEC on clarity uh, for regulation. Um, I, I I would say a personal frustration that I have had is that when I was in certain positions, and frankly, I still see it in my discussions, I never, I had challenges seeing industry be very clear on the clarity that they wanted, um, because I would see the SEC point to their 2019 investment contract guidance and how they feel about that points to how they view these assets with 40 factors of how they assess something falling underneath the Howey test. Um, and they feel that they're as clear, if not more clear, in crypto securities as in other securities law in a tech-neutral way, which is the only way to future-proof against whatever future technological advancements happen. Um, and as not, like a, not a lawyer, so not a capital markets lawyer, I'm really not equipped to be able to push back on that. Um, I am sympathetic though to the calls for clarity on pathway to registration that is something that i think that the mica framework in the eu gets right in a way that in the us um whether it's under our whether it's in our authority to enforce all of this or not um we have not been scaling enforcement against a lot of the most egregious actors in the space um and and i think that providing a clear pathway to registration it's going to be the best way to scale compliance and partnership with industry in the U.S. Um, so we need it. We need clear pathways to that registration and supervision. So that's something that I very much hope for generally. I know that's not specific to the case, um, but it provide, but it is, I think, valuable and germane to the things that are going on in this case, as well as others. Um, we, we've seen differing perspectives from court on ruling in some cases in support of the industry arguments and in some cases in support of the SEC 
and other regulators. So I think with Coinbase so far, like I'm curious to see what we'll, what we will see out of the courts and with the suit coming from the SEC to others. Yeah. I know it's a difficult question with the, an ongoing case. You can't really probably say too much and, and understandable there. So, uh, all right. So that was at a regulator before. And it's tough for me to like when, you know, cases take a, a while and a long time. So I appreciate your understanding for me not to necessarily be able to speak to um, specific cases. Totally understand. So we'll end that. I've been giving you a, a ton of curveballs and a ton of tough uh, questions talking about like where we can go with blockchain. So we've been talking a lot about the government. I think voting on the blockchain in theory sounds phenomenal, right? One vote, one person. You can clearly see if your vote counted, especially with everything going on in the news with one side saying the election results did not happen. This seems in theory a great way to say, hey, my vote is this person. I can see it on the blockchain. That sounds fantastic. In reality, how feasible is this? Is this something that 20 years from now, 30 years, how long do you think this could take? And will it ever come into fruition, do you think? So it's an interesting one because like, of course, yes, blockchain technology, which I remember when I, when I first knew blockchain, I knew it as two words for blockchain cipher encryption and in a very rudimentary way, thinking of like, but when I first came across it and seeing the description and be like, oh, it's kind of combining blockchain cipher encryption with um, distributed computing, you create blockchain as one word and this really cool like mechanism for creating um, a highly auditable, transparent, immutable um, you know, record. And I go like this just because like nothing is completely immutable. It can be like impractically immutable. So therefore like generally are highly immutable. Just like I said, with centralization, everything is on a spectrum. Most, most things are not a zero or one or on either side. That really hits that. Why there's a lot of interest in blockchain as this immutable, um, made for data integrity and auditability, um, record of activity. The real problem has been in implementation, uh, which you were kind of hinted at as the challenge, right? Um, because we have seen um, exploitations in these systems. Certainly, you know, you have things like 51% attacks and other um, ways to try to compromise um, the integrity of the data and the chain and try, try to take over. We've seen theft of, of assets and value off of these chains. Certainly, like North Korea um, is stealing over half a billion dollars per hack in some instances. So... It really all goes back to design and implementation and operation because, of course, you wouldn't want this thing to be public in a manner where you can like cluster different voting wallets together and try to attribute uh, a particular election cluster, voting cluster to certain identities the way that that certain uh, blockchain algorithms sort of can enable you, you to do so now. And I and and also it probably wouldn't be public. Although maybe it would be if people want to implement it that way to enable public transparency and trust in this. Um, but, but then you have to layer in privacy enhancing technologies to prevent that, um, to, to, to prevent the public transparency of who is voting on what. So basically there's a lot of questions that still have to be answered, but I have not seen privacy preserving technology discussions really move significantly beyond just saying, well, these will solve our problems. So the government shouldn't be worried. And me saying, well, like I, I'm worried because I'm not seeing people come out with designed and models for how we're going to create the governance structures and accountability mechanisms to ensure that, again, under privacy, meaning that certain information be discoverable, that like when, when necessary conditions have been hit and when changes are made, that then that information can be disclosed or that patch will be pushed or those updates will be made. So I think there's a lot that still has to be done on figuring out operational implementations um, as well as governance 
and accountability, especially, I think for, and I know you said optimistic. So again, I am optimistic that technology can do this. I think the biggest challenges are really in more thinking about operations, policy, governance than they are in tech. I think something like voting or other, these are high value transactions. Like a, a, a voting structure is incredibly sensitive and high value and would be extremely valuable target for advanced persistent threat actors and other adversaries who want to mess with it. So it demands very serious consideration of resilience and privacy and other measures being integrated. And when you have something high value like that, accountability is really what's critical. And that's what I think the future is in this industry. Um, as things get more and more decentralized and the, if the sector really drives towards less and less reliance on these central intermediaries and institutions that we've relied on for so long, the industry needs to evolve to really discuss where they want accountability to sit in DeFi. Um, can it always be at the application layer? If the risk moves beyond application or there is no real application to rely on, do you move to the network? Do you move to the protocol? Do you move to the end user? Where does accountability sit and with whom? Um, those are the really tough questions that I think that industry needs to be engaged on. And at the CFTC uh, TAC, the Tech Advisory Committee that I'm chairing, those are some of the key questions that the commissioner who's sponsoring us, Goldsmith Romero, has really been driving on. She wants us to really dissect and examine accountability in decentralized ecosystems. It would be best if industry would come together and sort of make standards and best practices based on where they believe that accountability should sit um, if you can't rely on it at the application layer anymore. That's fascinating. I think you just brought up one last question here. You kind of have seen this with AI where Sam Altman is going and they're taking people from the industry and uh, it seems like they're trying to collaborate as much as possible in, in the AI space. Do you feel like that same thing is happening with blockchain and are there industry leaders that are talking on the hill behind the scenes that are constantly there from, I won't mention like the names, but like the big folks in crypto, are they engaging pretty much or does it feel separated more so than AI has been? Yeah, no. So I think there's definitely lots of engagement that's happening. You've seen a really robust reg tech sector. So regular regulatory technology sector that has arisen in crypto over the past at least five years, um, but some even older than that to make use of information that's available to support things like compliance, monitoring, and reporting for certain activities. So not only that sector, because th those are tools that are used by industry for compliance, but also by law enforcement and regulators uh, to oversee um, the, the activity in the space. Um, but you're, you're seeing partnerships and collaboration um, between sector and government to try to figure out what is the way to move forward um, to promote responsible regulation. Even the White House, we have lots of meetings with industry. So I would say that the, that engagement is definitely happening, whether it's as pr as productive or as timely as I need it. Um, I I am um, uh, like I'm, I can be an impatient person. I want more action. I want more industry coming together to build standards and best practices for security in this space, whether it's national security issues and anti money laundering, or it's cybersecurity and operational resilience. Um, um, and, and other operational risk measures like capital reserve requirements and et cetera. Um, that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping to see more with industry. Um, you have bodies in government like NIST, the um, National Institute for Standards and Technologies, um, that is, that is promoting and driving the national standard strategy. And DLT is listed as one of the critical emerging technologies. But NIST is like that. I know that they're interested in engaging with industry because government does not build standards in a vacuum. 
they build standards based on industry when the standards are best. So I think there are definitely opportunities for engagement. There needs to be more empathy on both sides and especially from industry. I hear a lot of people say that, well, government needs to get educated. I think industry needs to get educated also on the policy landscape and ecosystem, the same way that regulators have to be thoughtful of the technology ecosystems. So both both sides come together with empathy and more timely action and information sharing of like operational actionable info to stop bad actors is really what I'm hoping that collaboration will go. Yeah. No, I mean, I think doing things like this, right? I know you have a lot of upcoming talking to different events that are coming up. So really found this conversation fascinating. Building that bridge is really what we want to establish of having those conversations with folks that are on the regulation side. Uh, The democratization of finance can really come together if we bridge that gap. Thank you so much for coming on and, and look forward to connecting with you in the future. Great. Thank you so much, Avi. It was great being here. Awesome.